Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle, where he answers your questions. Please welcome him to the show. Happy New Year, Dr. Lyle. Thanks for being here. You too, AJ. I can see that you're a, uh, you're a migrant from Southern California because you're wearing a hat and it's about 60 degrees outside. <laughs> Dr. Lyle, you've never seen me when I walk my dog outside, but I wear, I think it's called a, I don't know, you know, the thing that covers the whole face, which is the eyes that look like I'm going to rob a 7-Eleven. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I've been here almost two years. You said I would adjust, but I have not completely neuroadapted to the cold yet. There you go. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm doing my best though. All right. Well, Dr. Lyle, I, I, can you guess what most of the questions were about this being yeah. the beginning of the year? Sure. Beginning of the year, it's going to be about weight loss. That's Absolutely. And you, I think if I heard you correctly, you once said that weight loss is the number one personal goal in the world. Is that, is that still true? Personal goal in the United States. In the United States. So other right. countries aren't as obsessed as us, huh? Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what I'd like to do that, Dr. Lyle, is because three questions, they're not identical, but they're so similar. So if you wouldn't mind giving me a moment at the top of the broadcast to read them, because it's basically the same question. And you've helped more people, I think, with this problem than anyone else. But this is a question I hear over and over. And it's not so much about how to lose weight, but it's people that can't stick to it. So one lady is in her 50s, one lady in her 60s, and even one gentleman in his 70s. So I'm going to read them one by one. And the okay. first one is from Robert. He says, I've been trying to lose weight for 57 years. Any one meal or any one bad day turns into months off the wagon behavior. I guess there's nothing to be done except to get gold hammered. I love that, which I cannot afford, but would do in a heartbeat if I could or never have one compliant item. I feel it's almost too late at 73. Is there anything I can do to reverse this behavior? Similarly, Marsha, who is in her 60s, writes, I have an issue with sugar addiction and binge eating. I may have a day or two of being compliant, then I binge. I try to remain whole food plant-based, but fall off that boat also. All of the addiction, 12 steps, and other helpful programs call for meat and dairy to overcome this. What suggestions do you have to overcome sugar and binge eating? And then the final one from a lady in her 60s named Suze says, what is the best way to implement an abstinent-based eating plan for those who cannot achieve their health or weight loss goals with any degree of moderation, sugar, flour, salt, and high fat plant foods specifically. So these people, I think they possibly know what to do. They're just not able to do it. Can we help them? And, and, you know, age is not a factor because we just had a lady on with Dr. McDougall yesterday, 67, lost 105 pounds. Her 72 year old sister became non-diabetic, lost a hundred pounds. Esther Loverage, who you met 140 pounds at 72. So we want them to know there's hope. Yes, the, uh, the, the the there's a lot of assumptions that that are being made in some of these questions. So the um, they're they're already telling me what they can and can't do uh, before we've actually run a a relatively comprehensive set of experiments. So I would say that um, that the following is true. That hmm, I think that. In principle, the, the, the first thing that you want to do is you want to sort of uh, want to understand that you are a machine. So you're, you're a machine that, that operates uh, according to, it operates around 
every aspect of you operates around a core principle and that core principle is energy conservation. So um, you, you can think of yourself uh, as a machine designed to gamble time and energy and to try to try to get the maximum rate of return per unit of time and energy that you expend. Um, that's how evolution has shaped the bodies and the minds of, of all creatures. So some creatures don't have minds like an oak tree, but if you look at an oak tree and you look at how it survives and reproduces, you will find the principle of energy conservation is the defining characteristic uh, of its structure. In other words, it's going to have it's not going to have a root system that's 20% bigger than it needs to uh, for the problems that it's trying to solve. It's not going to have 10% more leaves than it needs. And in order to solve those problems, it's not going to be taller or shorter than it should optimally be. In other words, this thing is going to be designed optimally to do the following thing, which is to transform uh, time and energy into the DNA molecule. And so it's going to get uh, it's, it's a resource acquisition device. It's designed to acquire the resources necessary for survival and then when appropriate for reproduction. So there'll be times when uh, birds will be in a habitat where there's very little food and we'll find that they, they lay less eggs, okay? Uh, we're gonna find that when they're in a habitat with more food, then they'll lay more eggs. In other words, it's worth laying an extra egg because the odds are that the, that the chick will survive. Uh, if it's if it's a, a harsher environment, they won't. Humans do the same things. When women uh, that are of fertile age get uh, very thin, their menstrual cycle shuts down. In other words, basically nature says this is not a good habitat for us to be laying eggs. Okay, it's not it's not worth the time and energy to try to cause a pregnancy when the child would likely die of starvation. So, <clears throat> all everywhere you see. Uh, in, in the extraordinary um, architecture of bird flight, you're going to find energy conservation. You have to. In other words, how, how can you make the most use of the energetic uh, equations in order to be able to fly? The, um, the same thing is true with any of the people here trying to struggle with their diet. <laughs> okay, All you're looking at is you're looking at a problem of energy conservation. So the energy conservation system basically says, eat very rich foods when they're available, okay? But it also says, eat whatever's available. Uh, in other words, if uh, I, I'll tell people, they'll say, well, I'm a sugar addict. I said, okay, well, you would be a sugar addict. Uh, you know, uh, do you really like Snickers bars? Well, yes, I really like Snickers bars. I can't seem to stop eating Snickers bars. Okay, what if you lived in a village in Africa and they had a Snickers bar vending machine uh, magically on the other side of the river. But in that river, there was a bunch of crocodiles. Would you would you risk it? And the answer is, of course not. <laughs> Doesn't matter how enticing it would be. You would not cross that river. That would be uh, an energy conservation disaster. Why energy? Because all of your life's energy that had been poured into you would be in the belly of a crocodile. And therefore, that would have been a waste of your time and energy process. All right. So if you think of yourself as a time and energy expenditure machine that's designed by nature to acquire resources for survival and reproduction, you might be saying, yes, but I'm 72 years old. What do I have to do with reproduction? The answer is uh, you're designed by nature to continue to acquire uh, resources that might be useful for reproductive problems. Uh, if you're a 72-year-old grandmother, then you're going to be trying to live long and prosper 
so that you can uh, educate and aid and abet your grandchildren and your children's success. That's what that's uh, you may you may or may not be interested in in romantic process at that point. Um, if you do, that's a derivative or leftover set of neural circuits that remain in the system, but you know, thankfully and joyfully, uh, if that happens to be uh, a, a something that, that transpires at that point in your life. All good. So now we have the three great questions. How come I have such a hard time? The answer is your environment isn't set up correctly. So everybody that I'm hearing, I would we would we would stare at them and ask them the question. All right, sugar addict, where'd you get the sugar? <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, how, how did we have the slip that, that left to this, uh, went to the slippery slope? And the answer is we didn't have a clean environment. Okay, and so, uh, and why is that? Well, we went to the store and we got, you know, we were just, you know, our imagination was basically thinking through how good it would be to have some of that really rich food when I get home. Of course, that's what it did, okay? Why didn't we order Instacart and have it delivered? That way we didn't have to have that stuff in our face. And all we had to do is sit at home and wait for that food to come. And now here it is, and it's the only food there is. And we're going to have to stare at that food, knowing that it's second rate in terms of uh, energy uh, acquisition. Had, had we gotten the Doritos you know, and the sour cream and the, and the cheese, uh, we would have, every bite would have been more valuable. We would have had three times the calories per bite. Our sensing systems would have known that we were getting three times as many calories per bite. We would have gotten more dopamine hit with every bite that we took. And therefore, here we are having to suffer through our whole natural foods diet. Well, guess what? If you do that over and over again, and so you do that for 30 days, then we're going to find out that your memory systems start, uh, you go through a decay function in terms of how vivid the memories are of this great thing that, that you used to experience. And essentially, this is nature's way of not helping you with your goal. No, it's nature's way of helping you with its goal, which is um, ideal time and energy expenditure. And therefore, nature basically says, don't go hunting for the cherries anymore. Don't go hiking over there to the cherry orchard. If we already went over there two weeks ago and there weren't any cherries left, and after six weeks of harvesting those cherries, you know, we went back and checked two or three times and there's none left in the orchard. So therefore, don't hike over there and do it again. In other words, it's out of season. And so the same thing is going to happen with any rich food, that if you take it out of season so that you go three or four weeks without it, then the nervous system will be basically inferring that it's not available. And you might say, well, how is that possible? I know it's down at the grocery store. The answer is, no, actually, you don't know that it's at the grocery store. The truth is, is that your nervous system uh, actually operates according to uh, algorithms that are designed in the Stone Age for tastes and smell, okay? So that's why no matter how clean you are, if you walk by a pizza place and you smell the pizza, um, it doesn't matter that you haven't had any pizza in five years. You instantly know that it's back in season. It's available and you will be highly motivated to get it, okay? That means your location with respect to taste and smell uh, is very important. It's also, I mean, it's not entirely true that you don't know 
that that food is available, particularly if it's incredibly easy to harvest. So if you've got it right in your own kitchen, right in your own pantry, right in your own refrigerator or freezer, then you might, you know, suddenly uh, a thought will pop in your head about the soy ice cream in the freezer. And you'll think, well, what else do I have to do that would gain me any resources for survival reproductive problems? And you can't think of anything that would be as valuable as three mouthfuls of, you know, chocolate vanilla ice cream. And so therefore that's what you're going to do. But if it's not there, you're not going to do it. And your, and your mind will scan around the available thing. It will know vaguely that there's food elsewhere that you could go get. But if you haven't gotten that food in a month, you haven't gone down to the local deli and had some sandwich in a month, then it's, it too is fading over the horizon and taking itself out of season. So what we see when people do a very clean job and they have well-organized environments is that these cravings will sunset. Uh, this is precisely what they should do. Uh, the cravings are there to tell you that there's an opportunity that's right in your face and that if you spend time and energy, you could get it, okay? Uh, if you don't, if you frustrate that and basically don't uh, indulge it, we're going to find that that, those, uh, that motivation will sunset. So it doesn't, the sun doesn't go down and never come up. If you put yourself in situations where you can taste and smell that food or make it super available and easy in the future, then of course the energy conservation system is going to grab it, okay? Uh, you, it, it couldn't be designed any other way. This is what I call the devil himself. In other words, if you were the devil himself trying to design a system that would make sure that people would consistently indulge in something that has a drug-like effect, uh, in other words, some kind of addictive process, then you would design the nervous system just the way you designed it. It would be designed by nature to, to run cost-benefit analysis on this resource acquisition and grab the, the richest payoff that there was. And that's going to mean the addictive process because it's got super normal payoffs. So that um, that's how that works. That's why any addictive process is extremely difficult to defeat because uh, it wasn't the devil himself that did it. It was in fact evolution. And the goal was never to resist the, the richest uh, mining process of time and energy resource acquisition i.e. it was never meant to resist the sexiest mates and the, the, the sexiest food. It was designed by nature to calculate the value of trying to get it. And if the value of getting it was worth the time and energy and risk, then you went and got it. That's exactly how you designed it. And so you now live in a world that has supernormal food, i.e. The, the food that our ancestors took the greatest risks to get by far were meat at 1,000 calories a pound and honey at 1,800, okay? They got nuts when they were available. They're, they weren't particularly risky. We have to chase some squirrels and, and chimpanzees out of the, you know, and, and rhesus monkeys out of the tree, but that, that's not very risky. Bees are risky, okay? So bees, you know, that, that's a great prize in hunter-gatherer villages. Um, and meat is a great prize. Both, both of those things take time and energy and risk in order to get them. Um, the, so there has to be, uh, so, so we see that the average of those two things, uh, 1,800 calorie a pound honey and 1,000 calorie a pound meat is 1,400 calories a pound. It's a great price, highly motivated.
uh, it's not in the same class for the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Peanut butter and jelly sandwich is over 2,000 calories a pound. So we have literally surrounded ourselves and made staples of the foods that are in fact blowing away the, the highest risk, highest reward food that our ancestors ever got, okay? And it's easily available, no risk. And if we make it that it doesn't take any time or energy to get it, well, then you can, you can count on the fact that you're gonna be absorbing it. So once again, the great solution that we start off with on January 2nd of 2024, the answer to the question is the same that it's been for a long time. It's the same since AJ started her own journey 10 years ago. Uh, and that is clean your environment. Okay. 12. 12. 12. Yeah. Ah, okay. So the um, clean your environment and take that extremely seriously because that is the, the fundamental variable that you've got control over. And uh, if you control that fastidiously, that's your best odds of success. Okay, the peop the three people that ask these questions may or may not be live in the chat. If you are, please comment. But you know what I'm hearing is the next thing. I can't, and it's usually because my spouse isn't on board or my children. This is what I've been hearing for, this is why I've given up coaching people because I don't know how to coach people in an unclean environment because I don't see a lot of success, frankly. Maybe you do. You know, it's, it's unusual to have success. I mean, the success is not easy in this arena anyway, but it's... It's less likely, it's going to be one whole notch less likely if you're living in an environment with other people that are not supportive. And so at that point, this be, these become social psychological processes rather than, than issues between us and, and ourselves. So we, we move from the realm of conflict within your own psychology to conflict between you and other people. So that's a whole different thing. And, and the conflict with other people winds up being incredibly individual. So it, it depends upon who you are, depends upon who they are, depends upon the nature of, of those two people and the nature of their relationship. So I have people whose husbands are not, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not antagonistic, but they're not supportive. Okay, that's a different problem than somebody who's openly antagonistic. The, um, I have people that are supportive, but they are indulgent and therefore you know, therefore they want to, they want to bend the rules all the time. Okay. So they're inherently supportive. Um, it's not uncommon for, for me to hear of a, 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 a skinny husband that wants his wife to be thinner and wants to be supportive, but he doesn't actually want to not have, you know, pizza and, and potato chips. Okay. And so the, so it's like, well, you know, he just, he sort of ultimately doesn't see this problem correctly. He sees it really as a problem of self-discipline and uh, what do you call it? Portion control that they can't help it. It's uh, that that's sort of the simplest inference that people have about why there are weight problems is that fundamentally this is a self-disciplinary issue over portion control. And the reason why they believe that is that they, they intuitively understand the truth that if those people were to invoke self-discipline over portion control, they would lose weight, which is true, okay? You also lose your mind. Uh, in other words, it's, it's a crazy way to do anything. So we understand that, but nobody else understands it. And so as a result, the, the skinny husband uh, looking at his wife who's got a, a struggling with a weight problem 
really sort of believes that the solution is for her to just eat less. You know, that, that just be reasonable about what you eat, i.e., you know, mediocre, and then just eat less of it and go to the gym. That's what he thinks. So he is, generally speaking, totally obtuse and 100% ignorant about the entire problem. He does not understand. Okay. And so um, it's useful for the person themselves. Sometimes they don't understand it either. So I have all kinds of people that are 100 pounds overweight that, of course, feel like they are self-indulgent. And I explain to them, no, you're not self-indulgent. You're not doing it any differently than anybody else in the United States. Go go watch a bunch of teenagers at a rock concert. Okay, just go entertain yourself, or go go to a go to a baseball game and just watch all. You got you got twenty year old young men that are thin as a rail that are just eating crap. No, you, you are not more indulgent than they are. You have your different age, perhaps, or if you're not a different age, if you're a twenty year old, you person, boy or girl that's 50 pounds overweight, you're not any more indulgent than any of your friends. You're eating the same things. You have subtle differences in your biology about your efficiency processes of metabolism that are resulting in you being overweight. Now, nobody is designed to be overweight if they eat their natural food, but nobody in the United States is eating natural food, less maybe less than 1% of the people. So essentially, uh, the husband who's looking out at all the secretaries in his office and half of them are thin. He's thinking that his wife has got a weight problem and the other secretaries that have weight problems, those people are overeating behind their own indulgence, that they are eating too much and they need to eat less and they need to get to the gym. That's what he thinks, okay? He's wrong. The truth is, is that they're all eating the same thing. One of them is 70 pounds overweight, one of them is 50 pounds overweight, one of them is 30 pounds overweight, one of them is 10 pounds overweight, and when I'm zero pounds overweight, why? Individual differences in biology. Okay, that's uh, you know, if if you've got one kid that's below average, and then a kid that's that's average, and then the kid's above average, and then a kid that's a genius, it isn't because of the parenting. It's not. It's nothing that those kids are doing. Those are just individual differences in those kids. If you got one boy in your house that's five nine, and then another one's five ten, and then another one's six foot, and another one's six four. The reason is that the 6'4 fastidiously hung himself upside down in inversion boots for the last 10 years, and that's why he's 6'4. No, individual differences in biology. Okay, So it's difficult for people to understand that the weight differences that they see in people are due to individual differences in biology. They're not due to self-discipline, unless you're one of us freaks. If you're one of us freaks, if you happen to get this message and happen to understand that no, the problem isn't individual indulgences. It's the issue of whether or not, you know, you, do you eat a conventional diet, i.e. 99% of the people in the world, or you do something radical that tries to actually get control of this problem at the root, okay? The husband and, you know, the, the people in the family don't understand this. They're not going to understand it. It's just a little bit too complicated. Okay? It goes too, too much in the face of their own natural intuition. So they see overweight, they see self-indulgence. And they think that the answer is to get reasonable and discipline yourself about how much you eat, not radically change what it is that you eat. And why do they think that? Because they see all kinds of thin people eating that crap. And they're like, well, that can't be the solution. You see? So, so the the... The obtuse husband, daughter, son, mother, father, 
cousin, sister, whoever it is that's giving you advice or is influencing your eating environment and essentially telling you you're an oddball and you're wrong, those people, their thinking is understandably mistaken. Okay, There are good reasons why they don't understand. They cannot actually figure it out. It would be, I, I wouldn't have been able to figure it out. I'm sure that at 22 years old, I didn't have a clue. Okay, I, I would have simply thought, I, I quite frankly used to not understand, this is bragging, I shouldn't do it, but I couldn't understand why people, everybody didn't get A's. I just considered them to be lazy. Okay, it, it wasn't until sometime deep into my college career where I, I had some people that I was working with on a group project and I was talking to them and they were talking about their studying and I realized, oh my goodness, they're, they're, they'd really like to get better grades, but they just can't seem to pull it off. And then I, I, I said, it was dawning on me that I had more horsepower than they did, but I, I didn't really grasp that until I was 22 years old. Okay. The, uh, I still wasn't sure about it until I, until I went to graduate school, and then they showed me all the evidence of it. Uh, not me specifically, but they showed the evidence of species-wide differences in the ability to do all kinds of little things mentally, like remembering seven digits that, that people, that if they say 9, 14, 16, 32, 64, 7, can you remember it? And the answer is, boy, there's a beautiful distribution of bell curves as to who can remember how many of those digits. And I thought, that's fantastic. I had no idea that that was just a, an individual difference characteristic. Okay, now, so it's an individual difference characteristic in cell biology. How, how much of the energy that you eat, you know, do you need and how much of it do you save and how efficiently do you save it? If you're a really good specimen, it turns out that you can store a lot of it. It turns out you're not a very good specimen, you know, you can't store as much. So the people that are skinny uh, have inefficient metabolisms, and it turns out that they can eat a bunch of crap and they don't store it. <laughs> and in this, in this, uh, this is a, an example of in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Okay, so suddenly these people are celebrated as being paragons of self-discipline when they're nothing of the kind. They're just inefficient stores of extra energy, for goodness sakes. And the people that are 100 pounds overweight are seen as the, you know, the, the embarrassments of self-indulgent. They're nothing of the kind. They just happen to be people that have efficient cell biology, for God's sakes. Okay, so. <laughs> I mean, you talk about an upside down way of looking at things. You can't get it any more upside down. And meanwhile, your husband, your kids, they're never going to understand this. It's too complicated. It goes too flies in the face of their own intuition. So they're not going to know. So what are you going to have to do? You're going to every single one of these cases, you know, call me up and, you know, let's spend half an hour plotting how we're going to manage a difficult social psychological situation with you and, you know, whoever's in your environment that's stopping your progress. Those are those can be relatively easy or they can be dicey. Or they can be impossible. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what they can be. But AJ's right. I understand that. That is, I mean, this is hard enough to get yourself to actually go against your instincts, organize your environment in a way that's conducive to your success and stay with it long enough to take all this stuff out of season. This is, 
this is a great trek and very few people do it. And you're close. If you're listening to this and you've tried it a bunch of times, you're actually close. You're you're like a a young gold miner in in, in 49 in in you know Sutter's Fort. And you're pretty close to big gold. Yeah, you're you're snatching at it. You're you've got the right idea. You know a lot of what you're doing. You've under, you know, you've got the right clothes, you got a claim staked. You know, you're close to the gold here. Okay. The um that's you know, but what what's it take? The difference between success and failure is often pretty subtle. And so uh, this means the subtle issues of organizing your environment really well, you know, instituting some good habits about how mechanically you're going to get the food from the store into you and uh, and see if you can do it well enough and long enough to take these things out of season and, and have basically the cravings and the cognitive dissonance to go quiet. So that's the story, but yes, the social psychological stuff, AJ, that you raise, um, you talk about it and one, in, you know, it, it's like you just climbed a big mountain and then you got over the other side and they're like, yeah, there's one more climb. <laughs> okay. That's what that's like. So yeah, that's why it's a difficult problem. Sometimes we need help and, you know, sometimes I can help and sometimes I can't. So if I understand you correctly, when I met you 12 years ago as a patient at the True North Health Center, one of the first things you said, and this was in a general lecture, by the way, you were doing Q&A, you were not giving a weight loss talk. You said the line, and I wrote it down, I still have that notebook, you must work harder on your environment than you do yourself. Number one rule for healthy living is no junk food in the house. Yeah, so it's right there in the pleasure trap. <laughs> it's rule number one in the pleasure trap. Right. Yeah. So the people that say, I always, I don't, I always refer people to you because you, what, if I understand you correctly, very often a, a clean, if not a cleaner environment can be negotiated, but you often take into account the personalities of the people involved. So sure. and you explained it very well when it's a husband, but what I don't understand, Dr. Lyle, is when people have young children, because when they're on the spectrum, they always use that excuse. Well, he, he has to have this, but that are regular that you know kids that don't have some kind of emotional or whatever difficulty well my kid won't eat this way so i have to cook two meals and i mean so can that be helped when when these these very agreeable women just do, do whatever their young children say and give them junk food yeah um I, I would say this this gets to be an interesting problem because the uh i, I would say that the following is true that that there, there's a difference between a McDougal diet and a McDougal maximum weight loss diet. And that, that difference is not trivial. In other words, it's, uh, uh, John, John, you know, basically started this whole thing out with all kinds of people having success on the McDougal plan. It was very successful, but over the years, he ran into, ran into the, the percentage of the population that, if they were to eat a standard material diet, they're still going to be 25 or 30 pounds overweight. Uh, I don't know. Well, I actually do. I, I know one individual that was an outlier eating a McDougal diet that was still 100 pounds overweight. Now that that was super unusual. That that is the that's the most unusual genotype that I ever ran into in my career. So in in looking at over 10,000 people, that is the that is the one in 10,000 person. Okay, so that that individual 
only got down to a normal weight when literally she weighed and measured her totally maximum weight loss in the Dougal food and did that, had incredible conscientiousness and did that for several months and then finally gave up. Just basically, but, but you're talking about, like I said, you're not talking about anybody that's listening to this, this show. There is nobody on this show that is anything like this, this woman that I dealt with. The, um, God knows what your question was. And, oh, no. The oh, what, like when it's, when it's their children and when it is yes. their children who do not have jobs or money that, you know, because when, when they say, well, they're autistic, they won't do it. But just the normal American family and they have children and sometimes they're young children, three and yeah. four, but they don't have jobs, cars or money. And they still continue to buy the junk food and make them the food. Right. And, you know, just watching parenting and watching how, how essentially mentally exhausting that can be i can understand it in other words the uh, when my cat follows me around and and basically swings her paw at my unprotected achilles heel to try to get my attention to get another treat i understand it's like you don't need another treat you <laughs> but but she but you kind of just want to shut people up you want to shut shut up demands so i understand it however it's kind of one of these things. It's a little bit like credit card debt. Like once you get into it and then they have a high interest rate, then it's like you're playing catch up. And the same thing is true. If we indulge children with a bunch of junk food, it can be a problem where you're always playing catch up. In other words, you're, we're, we're always being under these urgent little demands and the little demands that they're not going to, they're not going to go along with a healthier path. And then we've got the problem of, you know, we can never break the frame. And so if we just want to break and get to quiet it down, then we indulge them, it all quiets down, and now we've reinforced it. And so uh, I understand how you get into that trap very easily. I can also explain, you know, the best way out. And the best way out is to have a, essentially the screws loosened to a good McDougal diet. Um, and you're, you're doing one notch better than that, but it's side by side, it's incredibly similar. So your a standard McDougal diet, you, you might you know you might have the problem of that you've got whole wheat bread in the house for your kids, but you're going to have to stay out of that. Okay, so the but but at least we limit it to essentially that issue. But the the notion that as you would say, if you and this is where the whole social dynamics of the whole situation come into play, which is that if we've got essentially a a an obtuse husband who feels like the real problem is, is that you've got to just reduce the amount of food that you eat, period. And that it does not have to do with what it is that you're eating. So he doesn't understand the situation. And he wants to eat spaghetti and meatballs and cheeseburgers and, and uh, pizza. And of course, the kids do. So of course, the kids are totally on the side with dad. Mom's the whack job. And she's not having any success anyway. So, you know, so they're, they're, they're looking at dad who seems to be in pretty good shape, i.e. happens to be thin uh, or not as overweight as mom. And mom is the one that's always harping on this. And it's all about, you know, reducing our indulgent processes. Then, then the kids are going to be very difficult to manage. And so uh, it's going to be a very tough situation, particularly if mom is not a, you know, if, if mom isn't a drill sergeant and can't get control of this situation with an extraordinary personality, then the inmates are going to be running the asylum. And so that that that's where, you know, that that could be a very complicated 
uh, mess to resolve. And quite frankly, generally you have to resolve it at the level of the husband. Husband's gonna have to go to the woodshed, for example, and actually listen to me lecture to him for an hour so that he finally once in his life actually understands the situation, okay? And you know, half an hour isn't gonna do it, I gotta tell you. But, but if you bring a husband to the woodshed to me, uh, particularly on video, okay, so it's a Zoom call, at the end of an hour, that guy who, you know, we negotiate, okay, for one hour of your life, you're just going to listen to somebody other than me argue with you about how it is that we do it. Will you do this? And it, once we do that, I'll shut up about it. Okay, so now we negotiate. He goes to the woodshed, asks to face Doug Wilde. Okay, well, at the end of that 60 minutes, life's going to look different for him because he's going to understand things that he never understood, and he will find himself in tremendous cognitive dissonance. And the most important thing is, although he may be confused and frustrated and pleasure-trapped and self-indulgent, but the problem is, is that he will no longer be on the moral high ground. Okay, The moral high ground is you just eat less. Us, we're just being reasonable. Everybody else does this. My three secretaries that work with Finn and they eat, eat right alongside me that work and they all eat this way. Why the hell can't you do it? Okay, at the end of 60 minutes, he will understand that when he walks down the mall and sees 75% of the people overweight, it is not because they don't have any self-discipline. In fact, he doesn't have any extra self-discipline. He doesn't have one extra ounce of self-discipline in him that his wife doesn't have. Okay. So this is, uh, he may not be able to spell very well, but she spells better. Why? Genetic. Okay. So the, um, he may not tan very well. She may tan beautifully. Why? Genetic. So he needs to understand the facts of reality. Once he understands the facts of reality, then we have a chance to negotiate. Okay, so this is, uh, but if they don't understand the facts of reality and we're a nice person and we can't, you know, we're, we're remaining on the moral low ground as they pound us over the head with the fact that we should be solving this problem for, with our own willpower. This is a, this is a recipe for failure. And so because this is so common, you know, AJ and anybody else who's been in this space understands how common this is. When you have problems uh, in, in life, sometimes the problems are, you, you can have a car that's almost fixed, but you still can't start it because there's one thing that's still wrong. Okay, and so that, that is uh, how often, you know, in order to improve matters of, of anything, very often we have to drill down into the details and find out you know, what part of this is not working and why. And we have to fix that part before the whole machine can work. And that is absolutely true with people that are motivated to try to turn their lives around in this space and have failed repeatedly. Um, as John McDougall likes, likes to say, you know, you were learning. So don't, don't beat yourself up over the fact that you failed seven times. The truth is you've been learning something across the last 25 years you've been trying to do this. It's surprising how often we have people uh, in the McDougall program that, that literally read John McDougall or heard about him 30 years ago and tried it for a little while, liked it, and had some success, but then they got away from it. And then they've spent the last 30 years wandering the earth like Cain. You know what I mean? Just have they've had nowhere, just been lost. And then finally in desperation at 70 years old, they return uh, and they return and they're like, yeah, I kind of knew about this. I had some success in you know, 1987 for a while. And then I got married or got sidetracked and, you know, uh, 
moved to Los Angeles where all the crazy stuff happens. And then whatever happened, they got out of their groove, they got out of their uh, their environmental scene that was conducive to their success. And now they come back and they're like, now I really want to do this because I'm in trouble and I have a feeling that this is the right thing to do. We see a lot of those. Uh, it's amazing how often I hear that story. So, and John says, hey, you were learning. And that's how I look at this. And uh, the difference as you continue to learn between success and failure is often pretty subtle. Okay? It, often it's as subtle as... Um, it's as subtle as getting a good vegetable steaming device and putting it on your counter and not, you know, and essentially that's where it lives so that it's right there so that you could just pop stuff into it. Okay. It's a, it can be as subtle as, as, um, uh, finding a substitute dessert. So I, uh, uh, last night I, I had one of AJ's, uh, strawberry, uh, shakes before I went to bed. And uh, that was I've been I've been sort of wanting something sweet and something some something desserty. And uh, and now in my house, because of AJ's instruction, I have sliced frozen strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's extremely easy uh, uh, to, to make this because they're sliced frozen strawberries. And there it was. And it's like I had about a 10 ounce glass of this and it was just excellent. And it's like, yes, that. You know, my my desire for something clean but sweet was satisfied. Okay. Well, I didn't know that before. Uh, before I before I went to AJ's house six months ago or whenever it is that, that I had my first one, I hadn't had one of those. Well, now that's an outstanding thing. So these are our little bitty pieces as we solve little parts of the trouble. And and uh the, the failure is not in an overall fail of, of your psychology. It's in the failure of getting a lot of little tiny mechanisms to work properly. Yeah, if you have a car engine that isn't fixed and it's sitting in the middle of the driveway, you, you could have, you know, you could say, well, the engine's blown, it's been cooked and, and it's frozen. Like, okay, that's true. But you, do you actually know that there is actually a way to fix it? There, there, there is a process by which we could get that engine to work again. Uh, it might be expensive, might be difficult, might be absurd, but it could be done. And for the mass, vast majority of engines that aren't working, there's absolutely just, there's two or three or four things wrong. But usually there isn't one thing wrong. Usually there's a few, okay? And the same thing is true with us in healthy living. There isn't one simple mantra that we can do and not one simple thing. There's a bunch of things. There's little bitty pieces and we have to string those pieces together to make the engine. Okay. So I agree with you. And I've always said to people, do the least restrictive program you can do that'll get you the results you seek. And I think that Google Star Solution works for most people and it's brilliant. But for those outliers, that's why I created Ultimate Weight Loss, which is basically maximum weight loss or yes. the gold hammer diet. Yeah. And so I go back to the first question asker who said one little, you know, they, there's a saying, one drink, one drunk. There's some people that just can't, like even that bread in the house is just going to call to them the way, like if I had, I don't know, you know, a Cinnabon in my house calling to me. So for those people, here's the thing you have said mm -hmm. that the, often that the diet to get somebody out of the ego trap is yeah. sometimes yeah. for some people, 
can get them back in the pleasure trap. And this right. pleasure trap and ego trap are diametrical forces like a child's Chinese finger trap. So right. for those people, how do we help them? Uh, so clean environment, yes, that's really crucial for them. Then what's the next step? I'm uh, not worried about those people because those people are weird. The, 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 if you're one of those people, you're going to have to call call me up and we're going to have a discussion. We're going to find out whether or not that's even true. And we can run experiments on whether or not that's true. The uh, I don't believe it. The truth of the matter is, is that when, when people go off the rails, they don't go off the rails because they had some, you know, healthy whole wheat spaghetti with some tomato sauce that had a little bit of salt in it. Not not a chance. That, that That's not going to drive people off this cliff. The, uh, the only cliff that that's going to drive you towards is it would drive you towards a sustained McDougal program. Okay. There's nothing about the McDougal program that's a gateway drug to crack. There's no way in hell that's true. Okay. So the um, so anyway, you'd have to you'd have to prove it to me. And let me tell you something. This is, you and I had an, a slight little argument about this a week or two ago, which is this was about bread. And I'm like, yeah, it's not the bread. It's what's on the bread. And nothing in the McDougal weight loss program that says have an earth balance in your refrigerator. It's not in the pro it's not in the program, right? So what's the point of the bread? Bread would be if you're gonna do McDougal sloppy joes or you're gonna do a veggie burger or something like that. That's fine. Now, so then people say, oh no, I'll eat a ton of bread all by itself. Not many people. That is rare. I that is not something that I see. And if I see it, it's not crazy. People don't sit there and eat half a pound of bread in their, out of their, their toaster with nothing on it. Maybe, maybe there's, uh, maybe we've got a listener that does that. I don't think so. I think if we have this hidden camera in their house, there's something going on that bread. <laughs> so that's the, the the standard McDougal program. I think is outstanding. It's the it's the baseline program. The maximum weight loss program is if you want to get to a weight faster or you you may you may feel like you know what uh it's that, that McDougal program if I do it well it's going to keep me 25 30 pounds overweight that I don't want to be okay and it's like okay but if you're 100 pounds overweight I would tell you hey go to the McDougal program first that I mean not the program program I mean go to the McDougal start solution first that's your first stop and the, the, as, as AJ would say, the least restrictive program to get to your goals. Well, your first goal is to get rid of 50 of these 100 pounds. So the McDougal uh, program will do that. That's an outstanding, well-balanced, non-highly non restrictive. I mean, relative to the world, it's crazy. It's a 99th percentile restrictive diet. But to me, it is, it is a different level of restrictiveness than AJ's program or True North or McDougal Maximal Weight Loss. Those three things are basically the same program, very close. Uh, and, and as a result, those things are, but that's trying to get a perfect paper. You know, my attitude always when any class that I started, I'm out to get an A, okay? It's the lowest A in the class. I'm happy about it. I just want an A, okay? Uh, I do not want the award of having the highest grade in the class. You know, sometimes I got it. I wasn't intending to. I just did a good job and I wound up with the top score in the class. That happened a few times. It's like, hey, that's good. It's kind of kind of proud of it. Uh, I, I would not aim for the lowest 
in the class, I'm aiming for the middle. And if it turns out that I slip a little bit, then I'm happy to get the low, the lowest day in the class. All good. That's what I want for my health. That's what I want for my weight. You know, that's that's how I want to run my life. I'm gunning for an A. If it turns out I get an A minus, you know, or a low A, okay, I can live with that. And uh, then I'll look at that next time around. Like maybe I got a little too loose. So an A is the McDougal program. A plus, top of the class. That's AJ's program. It's true north. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. You know, Alan knows this. Alan's all proud of himself. The true north is the A plus program. <laughs> he knows it is. He knows there could be a very subtle difference in some people between an, an A and an A plus. And sometimes it's important. He actually had this argument, had it out with, with Caldwell Elsiston 20 years ago. As uh, Caldwell was like, wait, wait a minute, you know, this beer program is just too over the line. You know, this this ought to be in it, and that ought to be in it. And Alan said, oh, no, that is not true. And he said, that is true for heart disease. So your program at SE is perfectly fine to reverse heart disease. You know that's true, but it's not good enough to actually handle some people that are have very dicey, touchy autoimmune diseases. And Esselstyn had never thought of it. It had never crossed his mind. And Alan said, listen, I'm telling you, that's how it is. And here's why. And I can break down the biology as best it's known. And that there, that's why we have this. This is the place where this is the best diet for everything, not just one thing. And Essie like, had to back up. And the great surgeon had to swallow his pride, realizing he was wrong. <laughs> and so, yeah. There's a reason, there's a time and a place for the A plus, but it's, uh, but as Essie would say, if you come to him, he, he's gunning for an A. And that's Essie's program. Essie's program is not as, as tight as, uh, as AJ or Allen. And that's fine, okay? And so it does what it needs to do. Uh, my, my issue with weight loss, almost everybody that has a weight problem, they are not close. Okay, they are, they're way off track. And my job is to get you to be an A student first. Okay, we gun for an A after you've got an A under your belt. And then we could start talking about getting an A plus if you want. If you go for an A plus, you know, that, and we don't get, essentially, we can't have a transformative experience in your diet and your lifestyle and all your social relationships, et cetera, and therefore have a a, a, a shadowing transformation inside your own motivational system. If we can't put you in an unbelievable cocoon and in a deep group for the rest of your life, then, you know, I mean, then, then we fail. So my, my point is, is that I'm not even a gun for that. So uh, when AJ talked to me 12 years ago, that's somebody that was way up all kinds of learning curves. She was actually very knowledgeable. Okay. And so that was a, literally all this got done in less than a one hour conversation. Whole thing is basically done. So we, she was like, got it, got it. That's off the list. That's off the list. But she wasn't swirling around trying to figure out what to put on the list. Like she was already super knowledgeable in the kitchen, had all kinds of capabilities. It was just like, oh, I'm going to have to stay out of the, you know, out of the rich, the high fat foods that are natural foods that are perfectly healthy. Nobody bitches about it, but I have to stay out of those. It's like, yeah, you got to stay out of those. 
And then instantly we start having success. So that, that was, and we happen to have an individual that is naturally in there, there's an A-plus player. But most people aren't A-plus players, and I'm not one. Alan happens to be one. Okay? So it's no surprise. SE is not, and neither is, uh, 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 neither is Colin Campbell. They're both A players. That's how they live life. They live life at the A level. They do not live it at the A-plus level. Okay? And guess what? That, that makes them very healthy, doing really well. Everything's fine. Okay? So that's... Uh, that's how I want people to look at this problem. You, if you're struggling, let's not say, well, the solution is going to be to be absolutely A plus perfect. No, I don't think so. Uh, maybe, but I don't think that's that's likely to be the case. I don't think your your failures lie in the fact that you did A work for three months and it was just so tempting to slide the, the bar over. No, I, I think there was a failure of the environment and resolution to stay at the A level. Let's, let's spend a few months at the A level, see how you live there, see if you can essentially make that a non-turbulent situation where you're gliding along at the A level before we even worry about A+. That's how I would have you do it. That's really interesting that you remembered you know, our, our session 12 years ago yeah. and that it was really lowering the fat because I kind of have this interesting question from Paul um, it, it's okay. So I'll, I'll just read it because he talks, he's asking you specifically about how important that is. So he writes, hi, Dr. Lyle, happy new year. Did I hear you correctly when you said that our ancestors diet had an average calorie density of approximately 700 calories per pound? Because in addition to whole plant food, they also ate meat and honey, which averaged about a thousand calories per pound and 1800 calories per pound respectively. I also thought I heard you say that if a person finds themselves overweight, it's because their average calorie density of their diet is too high. What I'm wondering about, is it just the calorie density or does the percentage of calories from fat make a difference? While I'm not a mathematician, I'm estimating that my calorie density of my diet is well over 700 calories per pound because instead of eating mostly wet starches, I include many dry carbohydrates at every meal, such as dry cereal, bread, flour, tortillas, and fat-free crackers, as I am a patient of Dr. Esselstyn. I do not need to lose weight, but I also don't include any overt fats such as nuts, seeds, avocados, coconut, avocado, or soy. I do eat quite a bit of bread and what I put on it is jam. I'm not afraid of sugar. My wife, on the other hand, eats mostly greens and beans and fruits, but feels she also needs to include a couple ounces of nuts a day for her brain health. And she's not been able to lose any weight. My diet is about seven to 10% calories from fat and hers averages 20 to 30% of calories from fat. So is it just the calorie density that makes a difference? Or is Dr. McDougall right when he says the fat you eat is the fat you wear? That's a, that's a big, complicated, this uh, person says many, many different things in here. So then, then we, we synthesize it down to a specific question that, that isn't answering all of the thing, things that he's talking about. So the um, uh, th this is kind of how, how this works. So the, um, you can absolutely get fat on foods other than fat, without a doubt. And so, so all, and it is in fact calorie density. So that uh, uh, is the issue. And fat, uh, John, John circles fat as the most important thing for various, probably various reasons. If we would talk to him, 
uh, about this. Uh, he would he, he would you know he would agree that calorie density is going to be the chief variable that is describing this issue. The uh, however, he's going to jump up and down and say yes, but look, fat is far higher in calorie density than protein or carbohydrate. So therefore, it's the fat that comes into the diet that is making the diet uh, rich enough that people are going to systematically overeat if you get it too high. Uh, however, the truth is we absolutely could get a high carb, high refined or high dried carbohydrate diet uh, and dried fruit diet that would make per, a person overweight. Okay, if they've got, you know, this is all, remember, what's sitting swirling around in the background of this is obviously individual differences in genetics. So there are people that you could feed an extremely high fat, high refined carbohydrate diet of unbelievably high calorie density and they would never get fat. Okay, so that, that's just straight up individual differences in genetics. So we have to understand that individual differences in genetics is the, is the first step in the equation that explains most of the variance that you're ever going to see between in, any two individuals. After that, we understand that, uh, yes, you heard me correctly, that, that 700 calories a pound, uh, at least we have one very good look at this in Africa uh, today that tells us that that's what it looks like. I like to say that that's not the that's not the only that those aren't the other only hunter-gatherer people that ever lived on Earth, and and that the 21st century version of them isn't the only people that ever lived on Earth. But I think that we can tell certainly a pretty good guess is my guess to this is that it's typically been 600 calories a pound plus or minus 100. So there's been many peoples across world history that lived in areas where they were only getting 500 calories a pound. And there's been people that have gotten 700 calories a pound. And there's probably been a few that have gotten 800 calories a pound, at least periodically, okay? But I think probably six or 600 plus or minus 100 is a pretty good guess. And so um, the dried carbohydrates are 15, 1600 calories a pound. Nut butters, nuts, et cetera, those are three-ish thousand calories a pound. So we can see that if we're eating nut butter or earth balances, you know, 4,000 calories a pound, butter is, that's pure fat. So we can tell that bread and butter, okay, which has been around for a long time, those things, that type of thing will put weight on an awful lot of people because bread and butter winds up averaging over 2,000 calories a pound, which is a long ways from six or 700 calories a pound. Words, that's really dragging the calorie density up, up the scale. The, um, this woman who is uh, uh, eating some nuts a day for her brain health, which is unnecessary, okay, that, that's, a, that's a fraudulent, I'll say fraudulent if the people know better. It's not fraudulent, it's just ignorance if they don't know better. So if some doctor somewhere says, oh no, I think this is really important, that doctor doesn't know, even though he thinks he knows because he's some expert neurologist somewhere at some university, and he's touting his new book that says how important it is. That's just complete nonsense, and there isn't a single scrap of support for it. Okay, the um, uh, so no, you don't need any nuts for your brain health, for God's sakes. Now, the uh, so if she's eating three ounce, you know, if she's eating thirty percent of her calories from fat, that's a that's a pretty darn high fat diet. And of course, on a diet that looks even remotely like that, that she's reached some kind of equilibrium. And she's overweight, she can't lose it. That's what it sounds like. And the, the culprit, John McDougall, would jump up and down and say, point to her fat content in her diet and say, What the heck? 
and your fat content in your diet is extremely high, and therefore you're systematically overeating. Um, John also points out that the, the storage of fat is super efficient when you eat fat. It's less efficient somewhat when you overeat on carbohydrates. That isn't a huge issue, but it's not a zero issue either. So in other words, you're, you're better off overeating a bit. If you're going to overeat, you're better off overeating a bit on carbohydrates than you are overeating a bit on fat. And so it sounds like if she's, you know, she's obviously systematically overeating if she's overweight. So she's probably overeating by a hundred calories a day or 200 calories a day, probably not overeating by 400 calories a day, but she's overeating just a little bit. And it's easy for her to do so because her diet is unnaturally high in fat. Our ancestors would not have habitually, over the course of their lifetimes, eaten a diet that was 25 to 30% fat. They just didn't have diets that were that rich. So as a result, her particular diet relative to her particular genetics is, you know, it sounds like it's healthy diet. They're a very healthy couple, but that that is too high fat, fat content in her diet uh, and that is supporting a diet that's going to keep her 10 or 15 or 20 percent or whatever it is overweight that she ought to be. So her solution to the problem is um, get rid of the, you know, just get rid of the nuts or get rid of 80 percent of them. And if, if you're panicked about your lack of essential fatty acids, don't eat nuts, grind up a few flax seeds and sprinkle them on your oatmeal. And that's going to give you what, quite frankly, you don't have an essential fatty acid deficiency no matter what you're eating. So yeah, if you're eating whole natural foods, you're not gonna wind up essential fatty acid deficient and compromise your brain function. So uh, that is a that is one, one of many, uh, what do you call it, urban legends that circulate their way around the hyperhealth arena. And so it, it's nonsense and it's not true. The, uh, however, if you're panicked about it, you know, you eat yourself a tablespoon of flaxseed a day that is a phenomenal, you know, make sure you grind it up. Otherwise, it will just pass right through you in your poop. Those seeds are so hard. But if you ground up a tablespoon of flax seeds a day, that's all the essential fatty acid any human ever needed. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when I lost even like the first 20 of these 55 pounds, I ended up losing Jeff Nelson of VegSource ran a story about me and people attacked me and challenged me saying, oh, you, you can't lose weight just eating, not, not eating nuts. And I'm like, well, that's really all I did because I was already SOS free. I was yes. vegan for like, I'm, I don't know, however many years, 12 minus 47, 35 yeah. years. I wasn't eating sugar, oil, salt, but but the, but for me, it, it you know, you said don't eat the nuts for 30 days. And I didn't. And people are afraid to even do an experiment. Like even if even if nuts were great for your brain health, do you really think that a 30 day experiment is, you know, they're they're afraid to like lower the, the, the fat in their diet to even see if it works. Super interesting. Very, very beautiful point, H.A. Yeah, we we can we can run experiments. And so, and we can say, hey, we're all scientists trying to learn about how our body and our minds work. And so let's change something of significance that somebody smart thinks is a good idea and find out what happens. Okay, so the, um, I just had, had somebody wrote to me and said, hey, do you think I ought to, yeah, I think I had to move to this new apartment. You know, do you think it, you know, and I've listened to what the situation was. I said, sure, why, why not, you know, you can afford it. It's reasonable. Why don't you go there and see how much you like it? Okay. And then if you don't like it, you can always change it later. So, 
you know, I wouldn't say that with a big fancy house with a huge mortgage. That one you ought to very seriously consider. But all kinds of things in this life, we can run experiments. And that, that's where it gets interesting with people with any kind of addictive process. It's like, okay, let's see how deep a water you're in. Let's go 30 days without any alcohol. Let's see what happens to you. Okay. Oh boy, you start to find that trepidation. It's like, listen, we're not making a long-term contract. We're not trying to trick you into never having alcohol again. We're just trying to give you informed consent on what it feels like to wake up in the morning without that little bit of a hangover. You know, let's see how it feels physically to get a better night's sleep. Let's see what it feels like, you know, just to just to be sharper. You might discover that you like it. Okay. That doesn't mean that you're never going to have alcohol again. It's just, it's putting you on notice that your life might have a better upside from doing things differently. I had a young man that has <clears throat> been hardworking guy and um, the kind of guy that works at the kind of job that what you do at the end of the day is you drink beer. And so he'd been doing that for years and years. And he decided finally one day, he's going to be like, maybe I ought to try not doing this. And so he he didn't do this for about a month. He felt a lot better. Okay? And he's like, you know what? I'm going to have to really take a look at this for the rest of my life about this. And, and, you know, that's all, that's the place where we are right now with him and that decision. So he's not swearing up and down that I'm better off without alcohol. And he's not swearing up and down that he's going to go back to alcohol and hell with it. He's now better informed. And he has an interesting perspective now that it's not you know if he goes into a restaurant with his wife the aunt the, the thing is no bring me in duels or whatever in other words it's not now he's thinking twice and his decisions are starting to change because he got some new information about himself that he didn't have before that's all we're looking for yeah thanks yeah. This is a question about um, what you're, you know, you, you have this uh, concept of wet starches versus like yeah. the dried carbohydrates. Yeah. And so what Christy wants to know, Dr. Lyle, does a big salad plus a veggie and starch, starch soup qualify as a wet starch centered meal on your recommended protocol for weight loss? Well, that's a very clean thing. In other words, uh, so I, I, a starch soup, I assume that there's some beans and rice or potatoes or something in that soup. Um, yeah, I'm, oh, I think maybe she's thinking about my little starch targets chart. Uh, and yeah, so, I mean, I would, yeah, I would definitely count that as a, as a, a win there. And, um, yeah, so, and, uh, and so with the salad, salad, so you get two check marks for that meal, which is good. You know, we're, we're, we're looking for those six check marks a day. You got two of them just for that. Then later on, Go do yourself 15 or 20 minutes of exercise. And then afterwards, have a banana. We got two more check marks. So, yeah, that is a, a, absolutely a, uh, that, that's a win. You get a check, a check mark for the, uh, for the starches and you got a check mark for the salad on that meal. Nice. Well, Dr. Lyle, we can either end here or we have two more questions that are not on weight loss. <laughs> no, I'll do two more. Okay. So, um, oh gosh. I don't know. I think one of them is going to get you mad. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do good. that. I'm like John McDougall. Half the time I just like to be mad. So that, yeah. that's it. Well, I'll answer the other one. I'll ask the other one first, but this is from 
Renee, and she said, Dr. Lyle, since I came across your talks with Chef AJ, I've dramatically increased my cell phone usage because I listen to your talks every day, even at night when I can't fall asleep or wake up in the middle of the night. I listen to your talks. Is this bad? Will this excessive cell phone usage give me a brain tumor or make my sleep worse? Well, what you ought to do is uh, what, what's happening is that your cost-benefit analysis, it, because it's new information and it's it's exciting and you're learning, your brain is saying, you know what? It's worth you know staying up and learn, listening for another half an hour because you might learn something. So that is a, that's effectively a mistake at this point. So you're you're being fooled by a Stone Age algorithm, which tells you that the person that's talking, you know, I mean, is never going to say that stuff again, and it's not going to be available again. So you better gather around when the old guy speaks, uh, because you know there there may be a nugget in there that's unbelievably worthwhile. But the bottom line is, we have modern digital technology. You know, the words that AJ and I say are going to live forever, apparently. Oh. All my my sexist pronouns, warts and all, unfortunately, are gonna are gonna be you know there. So you don't have to stay up late night. And if you're uh, the problem is, is if you want to, because the the brain is being tricked by the algorithm that basically says, oh no, I've got to listen to it while it's here, and nothing would be more important. The sleep isn't as important. You're being fooled by by that you're being sort of teased by an open loop inside your head that is you're trying to get new information that could be useful. And so what we need to do is uh, you may need to lock up your cell phone. So for 10 or 15 bucks, you can have a little, you can have a little device that your cell phone slips into and you, you know, can have a timer on it and therefore you're done. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, you're done until, you know, 8 a.m. the next morning. So this is a, however, these, these little devices work. Somebody gave me one. It's around here somewhere. The, um, but they're very simple. And that, that's a good device for people. It's kind of like hand abuse. Uh, in other words, uh, I had a, a man that very much needed uh, this kind of disincentive to drink. He was trying to beat alcohol. And he, an important component of that was him taking hand abuse every morning. So he'd wake up every morning, he would take his antibuse, and he'd say, that's it, I'm out of luck now. You know, when you know, he was a, a very successful executive and, uh, you know, people would invite him to, to fancy lunches uh, all over the city. And he would, and, and there he would be realizing, boy, everybody's, you know, a little bit of pressure. And, and I just calmly, you know, have the waiter say, no, no, thank you. And and get through there. Whereas if he did not have his hand abuse, he'd be in trouble. So I eat it's just a, a self-discipline and a moment when you can when you can do it. And now it just saves you all the decision making and cost benefit consternation involved. That's how you do it when you lock up your cell phone at night. Just lock it up at nine o'clock. Done. It's yeah. What if there's a true emergency like a fire and you can't get to it? Oh well. Huh. Yeah. Let's let's realize that uh, that that we went our whole lives without these things. Yeah. Our whole lives. So if there's a fire, hopefully you've got fire alarms inside your house. That's the only fire you need. Oh no, what if it's my kid's fire in Nebraska and I really need to hear about it? Well, you'll hear about it tomorrow morning. You know, you're there's nothing you can do about it tonight anyway. So yes, that is the 
that's the fascinating little anxiety that people have with this phone is if it's Linus's blanket, you know, we never had these blankets before. We lived just fine without these things. So you can damn well lock that phone up at nine o'clock and get your life back to where it ought to be. That's a, that's a, a, a reasonable way of doing things. But it sounds so hard. The only <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really hard because I actually use it to play something that puts me to sleep. Not, that's fine. You know, but that's not causing you trouble. But no, no, it's actually it, this 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 kind of thing that's very nice. So uh, the only reason I'm this question might get you upset, but it does sometimes um, talk about what we talk about with weight loss because a lot of people say this is the reason that they're heavy. Sure. I'm going to ask it. It's a legit, Lois writes in, and I don't know if you know this psychiatrist, but Dr. Lyle says, and Lois says, Dr. Lyle, what do you think of the psychiatrist, Dr. Gabor Mate, especially his opinion of childhood trauma carrying over into adulthood? Because a lot of people say they, they can't lose weight because of childhood issues, right? Right. Right. That's incorrect. Okay. So Dr. Schmo, who's some psychiatrist, doesn't understand anything. So um, if that were true, then suddenly everybody suddenly started to get abused in about 1970 and nobody was abused in the 1920s and 30s and 40s apparently okay so you didn't have any of these obesity problems in the 1910s 20s 30s and 40s non-existent okay but suddenly miraculously the parents of the world in around 1960 turned into monsters apparently wholesale and you know what only in the united states and uh, in certain areas of Western Europe. In other words, that didn't happen in Japan. So it just turns out that there was an epidemic of horrendous, sadistic parenting that managed to happen suddenly at about 1960. Now, come on, people, get clear. This shrink doesn't know anything about what's going on. It is, uh, or he probably does, and he knows he's a fraud, but it's a, it's an extremely, convenient and very uh, seductive excuse for this problem. Uh, people are also mystified as to why they're having a problem. So when people remember, people are having a problem where they have a goal that says you got to be super self-disciplined and yet they have behavior that cannot manage to manage it. Okay. And so why is that? And the answer was written by me 20 years ago. It's called the pleasure trap. Okay, so the pleasure trap is the cause of the problem. Uh, childhood trauma is not the cause of the problem. So if childhood trauma were, uh, if you want to uh, prove this to yourself, then go to the, the internet and look up Bruce Rind, R-I-N-D, one of the most vilified psychologists in world history. Dr. Rind, who was a chess champion as a young man, in other words, this guy is really smart. This guy got a little group of, uh, together of quantitative organized psychologists, uh, one or two of them out of the University of Pennsylvania. And they ran a meta-analysis. They didn't run the original studies. They, they pulled 59 studies that had been done by different investigators from the world literature on childhood sexual abuse. And uh, involved in these 59 different studies was uh, 35,000 victims. So they had detailed analysis, not that they collected, but were collected in 59 different investigations. And they compiled these mathematically. 
And then they ran the appropriate statistical analysis. It's known as a meta-analysis. And uh, they ran that meta-analysis and they discovered that there was no differences between those victims and people that were not victims with respect to whether they had weight problems, alcohol problems, drug problems, depression problems, divorce problems, job problems, in other words, problems. So they demonstrated that the big boogeyman that everybody thinks is the cause of their problems with their eating or their alcohol or their whatever the struggles that they're having, they are not childhood abuse. Okay, so that is uh, that that study was condemned on both floors of the United States Congress unanimously. Okay, only one problem. There's only four people in the Congress at that time that were competent to actually read and understand that study. So this became a firestorm because Dr. Laura Schlesinger went, you know, bananas on her on her uh, radio show about what a terrible study this was, okay, and how awful it was. Well, Dr. Laura Schlesinger was not competent to read the study and did not understand it. And so, but but her political force in this rattled literally the United States Congress. The, um, the, the, the four people that were competent to read the study, none of them read it. Okay. So basically, this is politically utterly and, and, you know, not palatable. And what I'm saying is not palatable. And so that's why these things keep coming up, because the palatable thing is to act all sympathetic victims and say, oh, that's the reason you're having trouble you're having. You know, this wasn't your fault. You know, these terrible things were done to you, okay? Well, that, you know, that helps people that are confused. They're going back and they're looking at that and they're like, well, I was, you know, abused. I did have bad things happen to me. Maybe that is the reason why I am having the problems I'm having. It's, it's certainly what it does is it says, hey, this problem, you're being made fun of, you're struggling, you're not attractive, you're seen by other people as self-indulgent, and this is not your fault. This was as a result of damage that was done to you. Well, believe me, if that were true, the um, I would be you know completely open to that, and I would be saying, well, what on earth are we going to do about it? Okay, the uh, how are we going to go back and excavate, talk about this, and get you on a Freudian psychoanalytic couch, or you know, I don't know what to do about this. The um, but but it's not true. And so it's going to turn out that the truth is in some ways not as palatable because the truth is like, no, actually, the truth is very different than we think. But as we drill down into the details of what the truth is, there's nothing, there's nothing disempowering about the deep truth. The, the, uh, and there's nothing, and you're, you are a victim, but you're a victim of the fact that you have uh, genes that were built for an environment of scarcity and they've now been plopped into an environment of unprecedented dietary excess. And uh, that you, you have genes that built you to look for the richest food in the environment. And now the richest food in the environment is richer than any of the food that was ever in the environment. And it's there plentifully, it's not there rarely, okay? So when we really understand the problem, you're just as much of a victim as you ever were, except that you don't have the convenient issue that says, well, listen, the thin people didn't have that happen to them. I had this happen to me, and it's because I'm a victim here. That's what's wrong with me. It's like, no, honey, that is not what's wrong with you. 
you may have had some bad things happen to you in the past and you carry those scars in various ways, but you're not carrying them on your waistline. That is not actually the cause of this. The cause of this is different than that. The cause of this is a, is a phenomenon that is actually impacting everybody, including the skinny people. It's called the pleasure trap and they're in it, okay? They don't, they don't show evidence of it on their bodies, but they show evidence of it in their arteries. They're gonna show evidence of it in their cancers. Okay, they're still going to be victims, likely, that those won't show up for a long time and they don't put up with a social psychological price. And people misunderstand you and your situation thinking that you're somehow indulgent. You are not indulgent. Okay, you're no more indulgent than they are. You just have a different metabolic efficiency rating. Okay, you start looking at all the details of the truth that are exactly the same details that I explained why the husband doesn't understand his wife's problem. And he would be ultimately tremendously sympathetic you know, in any way. He loves her, but the truth is he absolutely doesn't understand because it goes contrary to his intuition. So the reason why Dr. Schmo here, who's some expert in child psychiatry, thinks he knows something about what the cause of this problem is, I mean, uh, hard for me to believe because anybody that knows the scientific literature knows that that position is absolutely absurd. And if that doctor knows it, which he should, he's a fraud. Okay. Now I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he's a psychiatrist so that he's never had a stats class in his life. He doesn't read the scientific literature and psychology. He doesn't actually understand what science and psychology is. He's just a guy that went to medical school and then got, got education and drugs to try to help people for problems that, that the drugs can't help them for, but that's all they've got. Fair enough. Got a high IQ. Okay, anybody that gets through medical school and gets through residency in psychiatry has got plenty of brains. But brains and knowledge are two different things. Okay, And that man or woman, whoever is promoting that, is someone who is you know, basically uh, has a deep ignorance as to what actually you're looking at. So I do not have that deep ignorance. I know exactly why this problem exists. I've known it for a long time, okay? And so that's why, guess what? I have a lot of success having people that no matter what their history was and how terrible it all was, they can lose weight, okay? I'll challenge my approach to his approach any day. He can psychoanalyze those people and try to get them to process their little childhood issues about very, very past things that ever happened to them. Good luck, buddy. Okay, I'll, I'll take this road and I'll, I'll take him in a contest of that problem any day. You're so brave because he's kind of a big wig. He's Dr. Dr. Gabor Mate has been on, I mean, he's quite well known in this space, but. Um, Who cares? I, I don't care. So is Dr. Atkins. Yeah. Dr. Atkins is known in this space too. All kinds of people are known in the space, you know. That, that, that guy wants, if, if, if that, this guy hears this, then what he needs to do to educate himself is to look up the Bruce Rind controversy. I, I looked it up and it said he was a truth teller. I mean, I couldn't get through the whole article now, but it was, it's, it's interesting. Temple University, I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to read that. I didn't want to believe you on this because I had a very, very abusive childhood. And yet sure. somehow 
I was able to lose so now, now what did we need to do? We need oh. to get rid of the nuts. <laughs> I know. But, <laughs> but but the thing is, is I still kind of wanted to hold on to that. And yes. then said something to the effect of, if this is true, then why are there more overweight men than women? Because most traditionally, it's the women that are presenting with this as yes. the reason. And I didn't believe you on that. And I looked it up and it was true. Hey, AJ, all we have to think about is world history. Think about the United States. You, you didn't suddenly have abuse rates go up by a factor of 10 starting in 1960. There's no way that's true, okay? The abuse rates, if anything, they're reducing as we get more scrutiny and children are more powerful and they've got cell phones and they know how to call CPS, okay? We got more social workers. We have a less abusive process today than you've ever had for children. There's a hell of a lot more abuse in 1930 than there is in, in 2020. Okay, so obviously that's true. Yeah, you, you had a lot of rough people, poor people, frustrated people that, you know, beaten their children in Appalachia in 1935. So now I'm not saying it was routine, but I'm saying it was more likely to be then than it is, it is going to be in in freaking, you know, Fresno in 1980, for God's sakes. So why would you have a massive explosion of obesity? that took place recently, very recently, and only in certain places in the world. Did that happen in the Dominican Republic suddenly in 1990, where suddenly they had a whole bunch of obesity, but they had never had it before? No, it's because the food supply changed and they had huge amounts of oil that were imported in the Dominican Republic suddenly, and then everybody starts frying their food and everybody got fat. That didn't happen because people were abused for God's sakes. So, this is a, I understand that the, the, the reason for these problems is sufficiently complicated and sufficiently counterintuitive that it is difficult for people to discover the truth. So Dr. Schmo is one of these people that he hasn't done his homework, okay, and has not learned what the facts are, doesn't understand that if you put rich food in a rat cage, the rats all eat the rich food. Okay? And they get fat and sick. That's what happens. And then when you put that healthy food back in, they won't eat it for 14 days. Does Dr. Schmo know anything? No, it was only the abused rats that got fat. It was only the abused rats that over. It's only the abused rats that didn't want to eat the healthy food. This is just bullshit from one end to the end. It's start to finish, it's wrong. Okay. Aristotle, 2,500 years ago, or however long ago he lived. It said, be careful about what assumptions you make, because if you make false assumptions, you're going to wind up in a very wrong place. Okay, These people have false assumptions about why it is that people struggle with behavioral control. The pleasure trap is the story, but the problem is not that there's anything wrong with you at all. Okay, This is an entirely different perspective. It is a revolutionary perspective in understanding self-destructive behavior. The pleasure trap basically says there is nothing wrong with you. It is very unlikely that there's anything wrong with you. Okay? It is possible one in 4,000 people got some haywire self. But the truth is, is that whenever you see a widespread self-destructive problem, that is not because there's anything wrong with the people. It's because you've had novel changes in the environment. If we go now, to the hunter-gatherers on the Serengeti or in Kalahari, we will not find addiction processes. You're not gonna find obesity. 
you're not going to find, you know, you know, uh, a social anxiety disorder. You're not going to find that. Okay. These people are going to live inside their hunter-gatherer communities. They're not going to be disconnected from their work and be have this feeling that their work doesn't mean anything. That will not exist in the Bushmen of the Kalahari. Okay. They, in other words, when we start looking at all of the things that we don't have, you're not going to find them staying up too late at night looking at anything. It's like all these problems go away. You're not going to find insomnia in the Bushmen of the Kalahari. Never going to happen. And so the problem after problem, and you are absolutely not going to find that some kid that's abused is now stealing food to so, and then that's causing them to be a fat little Bushman of the Kalahari. Never happened. Okay. They, they had plenty of time. They could spend more time collecting more food and then get fat because of what their abuse history causes them to eat more. Come on, get, get straight. None of this has anything to do with your childhood. Okay. These are the, problems of an adult animal that has a resource acquisition algorithm that is demanding that they get the most calories for the least effort possible. If you do that and you place those people in the moderate environment in front of you, you wind up people looking like people that are living in the pleasure trap. It has nothing to do with there's anything wrong with you. There's not a damn thing wrong with you. Your environment is pathological and your only solution to the problem is to work extremely hard in the environment because that's where the problem is. Don't be working on yourself. That's not where the problem is. What a beautiful ending. We've come full circle. Dr. Lyle, you are so brave. It's like we have Dr. McDougall on Monday and you on Tuesday, and you both are just not afraid to uh, express how you feel about these issues. Not even, at all. Even if people disagree with you, and some do, and they have the right to do that. And yet, no matter what you say, and Dr. McDougall said yesterday, instead of joining the McDougall program, I see many of the people are going to join the weighing and measuring programs, and that's how they're going to solve this problem. Sure. And you, you keep, you know, keep triangulate, keep looking for the truth, and and uh, sooner or later, hopefully, we have some of it for you that will help for you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyle. It's I, I just I just it's so much fun. Even though I feel like I know this stuff, I just love listening to you tell it like it is. All good. Great. We'll see y'all soon. Have a great year. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific time for Kathy Hester's Vegan Kitchen. She's going to be making goat milk, but without goats. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. Bye. Okay. And there we go.